years. So I expect to be, let's go to uh, Esther chapter 6 and 7, we're going to cover two chapters. So I expect to be here just a little over three hours, but nothing too bad, you guys should be fine. Uh, so we are going to read the two chapters, however, just because they're only about 10 verses, roughly. I think you guys can handle 20 verses, because we've done more at once. So uh, we're going to read it, and then we'll start. If you can't find Esther, go to the book of Psalms and go left. It's Esther, Job, and Psalms. If you've got Psalms, backtrack a little bit. Uh, so Esther chapter 6 and chapter 7, and we're going to read that, and then we will pray, and we'll see what uh, the Lord has for us. So let's, let's start in Esther chapter 6, verse 1. On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles... There were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded thresholds and who had sought to lay hands on King Osarius. The king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the, the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, I'm sorry, the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought in, which the king has worn. And the horse the king has ridden be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let him dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall by him, before him. Sorry. While they are yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther prepared. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then the queen answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Asarius said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Queen Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the, place, the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king, and the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the king or the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. 
Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, However, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. There's a lot there. So we're going to pray, and we're going we're to jump in. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, help us to uh, see uh, the glory of Christ in this text. God, give us eyes to see, um, remove distractions from our hearts and our minds. God, help us to trust uh, your hand, uh, because we can trust your heart. Uh, Lord, you are good, and you do good. Help us to know that everything in life, you are ordering our steps, that we might magnify Christ. Here's let me pray. Amen. Uh, they said there's nothing worse than a password with no intro. I'm getting ready to prove that. I don't got an intro. So here we go. Uh, we're going to recap uh, real quick. Um, so George just did chapter 4 and 5 yesterday. Um, I want to kind of get us up to speed of where we are in the story because the text starts off on that night. Okay, well, what night is that? So we're going to jump in. So Esther chapter 1, if you remember, Persia is the ruling empire over the Jews. They are in charge. They are enslaved. They are in exile. And the king of the nation, Assyrius, if you have a different Bible or translation, it might say uh, Xerxes. It's like the Greek version of the Old Testament, so it says Xerxes, just an FYI. He holds these big feasts. And during one of the feasts, the king says to his wife, who's Queen Vashti, says, Hey, I got an idea. You're really pretty. Go out there and show how pretty you are. I want people to look at you and go, Man, the king is lucky. In case you're wondering, it's not the best idea to do if you're a husband. So Vashti says, You can drop dead. It's not what it says, but essentially... So she, she refuses, and the king is just furious. I am the king. You do not rebel against me. So that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the king says, you know what? I'm going to get me a, a, new, a new woman. And she's going to be prettier than this queen. I'm going to replace her. So what does he do? He sends out servants through all of the provinces. There's about 127 that he's over. So 127 zip codes he's over. And he says, go find me a girl. Find me a bunch. I want to pick. So they go out and they find, as you can probably imagine, Esther, who the Bible says in this text that she's very pretty. Um, however, she is a Jew and she doesn't reveal that. So she's chosen amongst many other women to go to the king's harem. And essentially, the king stares at her and says, I want her. So she becomes a wife of a pagan king. And during this time, there's a conversation outside the king's gate. Uh, Mordecai, you see a lot involved in this text. Mordecai is essentially Esther's cousin, who's older, who kind of adopted Esther because Esther's parents died. So he kind of says, hey, I'll raise you as my own. That'd be great. Mordecai is outside the king's gate, and while that's happening, he hears a, an assassination attempt, essentially. They say, we're going to overthrow the king. And Mordecai goes, well, look what I just heard. So he tells Esther. Esther gets word, tells the king, and says, Mordecai told me this. And so those guys get whacked. King's safe. Chapter 3, the king then promotes Haman as top dog because he says, my people can't be trusted. They're trying to overthrow me from the inside. So he promotes Haman to the higher honor, to kind of the VP. He's kind of the, the commander over all the armies. And Haman walks through the gates one day, and that same Mordecai is standing outside, and everyone just bows. Haman is awesome. Look at Haman. Except one man, that'd be Mordecai, because he's a Jew. He knows he worships Yahweh. He doesn't worship anybody else. And so what does Haman do? He just, as George just mentioned, he just explodes. That one Jew will not worship me. So he essentially plays Hitler and says, I'm going to wipe out every single Jew because of that man. So kill him. I want them all gone. He's just like a mafia boss. Wipe him out. I don't care. Get him out. That's chapter 3. 
The Jews of the city are completely mourning in chapter 4. They're terrified. They're scared. And Mordecai tells Esther, look, you've got to get us out of this. You are the queen. we got a shot if you say something. You've got to help. And Esther says that no one dares talk to the king that way. You don't just go to the king and say, hey, listen up. Real quick. A little, little hub session here. Can we talk? You don't do that. She even knows if you do that, the king has the right to kill you. So Esther's like, I haven't even talked to the king. You want me to go demand our lives? So what she says, she says, I'll fast. Have the whole nation fast for three days. I need time. I need to pray, essentially. Chapter 5, is, it's showtime. So Esther walks in, three days is up. She puts on her royal robes, goes to the king's chambers, and the Bible says that she instantly won favor, as in Esther just is going to get what she wants. The Lord opened the king's heart, essentially, to say, what do you want? And Esther gets it. And she says, I want to have a little dinner party. And Haman could third wheel it. Because she has to expose she has to expose who he is. She has to. So the, the dinner party happens. Esther is involved and Haman's there. George pointed out last Sunday that whether it was fear or some kind of plot, Esther doesn't tell the king. She kind of goes, postpone. Let's do, let's do dinner next week or tomorrow. Let's, just, let's try this again and then I'll tell you what I really want. And that's where we're left off. Haman leaves dinner feeling extremely happy. He just, he's pumped. And then again, guess who he sees not bowing down? That blasted Jew, Mordecai. So Haman is just losing it. He's furious. And the text even says, uh, if you read in verse 11 of chapter 5, he says he recounts his splendor, all the things he has, and says that's nothing if Mordecai's not dead. So he's just, two things in life, kill Mordecai, be cool. That's what he wants. Mordecai just has to die. He has to kill him. So that's where we are in the story. It's already been said multiple times by George and by Jared that this book, it's worth noting again, never actually mentions God. Very strange, I think, how that is. And yet I think it's, it's that way so that we might have a parallel of what our life really seems like. I think oftentimes, and maybe I'm alone, it really seems like God truly is absent. There's, there's no mention of God did anything in this. I think this is a really good parallel to what life actually seems like. It seems like God is not involved. You, you, just, you, you don't see what Moses saw. You don't see a fire. You don't see Sinai. You don't see those things. You don't see, you're not Isaiah and have God speak. You don't have those things. And I think that's the point of this book, is to say, you don't see him, but he is everywhere. I mean, he's you, everywhere in this text. No miracles, no God, it seems like, but... This text shows us that God is truly involved. Charles Spurgeon once said this. This is where I get the title of my sermon. When you can't trace his hand, you trust his heart. So, friends, we will see God's hand. Got, God, what are you doing in my life? We don't have to see what he's doing. To, if you know the character of God, you know what he's doing. You're working for your good. He's sovereign. He's kind. He's gracious. Because we know his heart. So how do we know his heart? We, we, see, we can trust God's invisible hand of providence governing the world because we've seen his heart at Golgotha. You know God's heart at the cross. How can we not trust him with tomorrow? I think that's the point of Esther is to understand that when we can't see his hand, when it seems like God's absent, we can trust his heart because we know what he's done and what he's doing. So my, my desire tonight is that we'd see two things, that we would see the providence of God. So God's working in the world through ordinary means 
governing everything in such a way that we're responsible, but he is fully sovereign, doing all that he wants. And the second point is that we would just see the gospel. That's my desire. So, let's go where we left off. Esther chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, so again, what night? Haman just left this dinner party, furious with Haman. And if you look in chapter 5, he goes, we should kill this guy. Let's do it tonight. I'm, let's make some gallows. Some people think it's like a big pole. You basically throw the body on, they get impaled through it. Some people think it's kind of some kind of hanging noose. Apparently, it's some kind of combo. The two point is, Haman says, we're going to slaughter him. So I'll go talk to the king tomorrow morning. We'll work it out. No big deal. I'm the VP. I'll get what I want. On that night, who could not sleep? The king. The most important person with this job description could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, and it was found and written how Mordecai told about the king's eunuchs doing these things. So are we truly to believe that this happened by mere chance? At the night when the most deathifying movement was going to happen in this nation, the king just goes, man, I cannot sleep. So why, why couldn't he sleep? Did he have bad chicken? Did he fire sir? I don't know what he did. Did he, fire, did he have just a rough day being king? He was the master of 127 zip codes, but he couldn't master 10 minutes of his night. Do you know why? I'm not in charge of anything. We don't control anything. <laughs> this is no mere coincidence. This is of the Lord. The Lord kept him up all night. And again, did he maybe have to eat something bad? Sure, let's go with that. But just by chance that night, that's, that's not what the text is trying to imply. I'm reminded of the same coincidence, so to speak. Uh, in the book of Acts, there's a, a scene in Acts 23 where Paul's been captured. Again, I know, he, just, he, can't, he can't get away. Paul gets captured. He's held before the Roman Empire. And he's getting ready to get transferred to a governor, to a different location. And there's 40 Pharisees and Sadducees and Jews who, they hate Paul. And they gather in this house and say, let's kill Paul. So much so that they take an oath to say, we're not going to eat until we kill him. Now, if you're a man, that's a pretty big vow. I ain't touching food until I kill this guy. You're going to be starving. So you're going to be even more angry to kill somebody because you just... I want that steak. i got to kill this guy and get that steak. So they're so angry. They make this vow, just don't do anything until we kill him. Just so happens in Acts 23 that the instant they make those words, Paul's nephew is outside the building just hanging out, doing what kids do. I don't know, playing? I don't know. And what's he hear? The plot. So he runs and tells Paul. Paul goes, yeah, go tell the governor. Get me out of this. So he tells the leading commander. Paul gets sent to the governor with the whole infantry behind him. Paul's safe. Coincidence? Before that, God said, I'm going to get you to Rome. So this is, he, literally, he says, Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome. Don't worry. So this is God's hand again saying, there's no coincidences in life. He got out talking like pagans. There's no chance? Random events? What a coincidence. So you see God acting this night. Uh, the Puritan, so he's an old dead guy. John Flavel once said this, He who observes providence will never be long without one to observe. So what that means is once you understand and you grasp that God is truly working, everything for your good is involved in every day, you will never not see it. Now, it may, it may be hard. You may be, man, I don't like how this is working. This is difficult. That's not what he's trying to say. 
what he's saying is once you see it, you can't get your eyes off it. So you can trust him. So Lord, give us eyes to see. Help us to trust your hand even when we can't see. Help us to trust your heart. That's, what, that's our, our plea today. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from what? Your father. So even these two random birds that just die off in the woods tomorrow, that was, that was involved in God's hand. That's his plan. Well, they fell. So even two little sparrows that fall, God's saying, I'm God over that too. They fell because I had them fall. And yet God's even big over things such as this in Job 12. He says this, He, God, makes nations great and He destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. So from the tiniest bird to the biggest nation, God says, I rule everything, including your 10 minutes of sleep. I rule that too. Probably the best all-encompassing statement I think the Psalms have is Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. You name it. God does what he wants. So he's working. So let us never grumble or complain like the Israelites did in their wandering. Guys, do you grumble? I grumble. I'm always just, my luck. If only, you know, whatever. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, you know God can smite you down, right? Guys, let us not grumble. How much worse could your life be if you weren't in Christ? What? We just heard a while ago from James 1.12 by Brandon. Blessed are those who are in trial. Let's never grumble. Jesus never grumbled. He trusted the Father's heart. He knew, his, he knew his dad. He knew the Father. Let us remember the words of 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. It's enough right there. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Not to grumble. I become frustrated, like I do, to trust him. He really is good. He really is kind. May we say with Christ, not my will, but yours be done. So verse 2, the king gets this book and says, give me that book. I guess he wants a bedtime story. He don't really know what's going on. I mean, the king is the king. If he wanted it, could he get it? Yes. I want, um, I don't know, pick a band. Maroon 5, here, playing, now. King's 3 a.m., don't care, get him. He can get it. Anything he wants. Give me a ballerina, I don't care. I mean, give me a chicken dinner, anything. What does he ask for? Give me some book. What's interesting is, do you think there's more than one deed recorded in this book? There's tons. 127 zip codes, a lot of people. You think there's more than one guy doing some kind of good deed? Probably a bunch, all right? And yet, where does he just happen to turn? To Esther's in Mordecai's life. Just, oh, that's a good page. Just, just, just turn the page there. Aren't you glad that Mordecai got passed over for his good deed? You think Mordecai's pumped? Like, I'm glad I got left over then. Woo! Friends, when your life goes unforgotten, it may not be anything but a tremendous grace in your life. You consider that? Mordecai must have been like, man, I deserve the belt for this. I should get a high five. Give me a ring or something. He gets forgotten. For this day, for this purpose, for the king to say, let's read a book. And just happen to read right here. If you look in Esther 2.23, it says, and the king recorded that deed. So we have factual evidence that it did happen. He, he did record it. Just happens to read this story out loud. 
And what does he say? Huh, we, we, never, we didn't ever do anything with Mordecai, did we? Friends, you may never receive any reward for your act of obedience on the earth. Your obedience in Christ may be long overlooked by every person on the planet. Maybe, maybe even in this church. I don't see the things you guys do. Jared didn't see all the things you guys do. Your neighbors don't. Your wife, husband may not even see the things you guys do for obedience to Christ. But I think there's two eyes in heaven that matter that see every act of obedience you've ever done. Friends, your reward in heaven is coming. It truly is. God's not forgotten the things you've done for his name. He's not forgotten who you are in Christ. Matthew 6 says this, The things done in secret by men, if you want to see, they get the reward. They get the hand claps. But the, the, Jesus says this, Those who do it in secret, my Father sees it. And he rewards you in your secret. That may be in heaven, but the two eyes that matter see everything you've ever done for good in Christ. Your reward's coming. Heaven's coming, guys. It's not very far off. It's a beautiful thing that it goes unnoticed because God sees all and rewards those who are obedient to Him in faith. Colossians 3.24 says this, You are serving the Lord Christ. Ultimately, in all you do, you're serving Christ. His records show. His account sees. Your debt's been paid in Christ. Everything you do is counted for you now because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Isn't that good news? Jesus sees your faith. He sees your patience, even though it's feeble at times and wavering. It's not going to go unmerited. The Lord's aware of what you're doing if you're in Christ. You do get rewards in heaven. Isn't that great? You get rewards for just being a Christian. <laughs> like, first you get Jesus, and then you get more. It's a lot for any easier. Compared to the pleasures of the world, heaven is far, far better. So in 3 and 5, we see this. The king says to his servants, you're right, we've not done anything with good old more. Just nothing. Not one thing. So in verse 4, what seems to be most likely early in the morning, probably like 5 a.m., because, you know, there's no, like, lights in their house. So it went 7 p.m. at night. They're all in bed. So you know, this could have been at 5 a.m., crack of dawn, 5.45. Mordecai's like, ah, just a regular day. But Haman, get, Haman gets up saying, i got a plan to do. i got to wipe somebody out. So on that night, when the king could not sleep, reads the deed and says, we got to reward Mordecai. What does he ask? Hey, uh, where's Haman? Just throw it out there. Is Haman in the courtroom, by the way? He is. Uh, a lot of commentaries will say that the reason why Haman just like happened to be there, yes, God's providence, we can agree on that, but why would, were people just in the courtroom, just hanging out outside the king's gates? Well, a lot of times they say, because if the king wants them, day or night, he would get it. It's kind of like Amazon Prime. You want it, order it. You're going to get tomorrow anyway. So Haman was kind of there in the sense to say, King Phenemian right here. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. So he's there, and he just happens to be on his way in. While he's coming, what's he coming to do? To tell the king, we need to hang that Jew. He needs to die. And Haman, remember, him and Haman, they're good friends. They, I mean, they are tight. They're BFFs. That's, that's his vice president. Haman spent all night planning, preparing for this very hour. And so the king says, come in. Verses 6 through 9, we see this, the convo between Haman and the king. Uh, the king asks Haman for a professional opinion, so to speak. And if you remember in chapter 5, 
George elaborated that he is just the most prideful. I mean, he is just, he thinks he is a hot shot. I'm Haman. Who doesn't want my autograph? I mean, it's Haman. He gets what he wants. He's a ruler of all the armies. You don't touch him. He can just ruin your life in an instant. He has all these, chapter 511, he says, Splendor of riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king honored him. Advance above all the officials. So he has everything. And then he asked the king this. I want you to read this verse with me. It is the most, this might be the most amazing statement I've seen in the text. This is the funniest, most ironic story. And it's outstanding what happens. Before we get there, I want to remind us, are we more like Haman than we think? You guys think you're top dogs? I sure do. I think I'm so cool. Like, I know I'm a dorky dad, but man, I'm cool. Like, I'm funny. You know, I, I think I'm just worthy of so many cool things. Like, when th- things don't go right, well, I, I don't deserve that. I deserve something better than that. You know, I don't, I don't think I should have anything ever ill befall me. I'm so great. Guys, we are more like Haman than we think. And then at the same time, we know the world is filled with people who are, quote-unquote, successful and tra- trampling over everybody else who make a name for themselves. And we just think, like which, which Andy read today, how long, oh Lord, how long will the wicked prosper? How long will they just clean a house? These wicked men, how long will they rule? But the Bible com- seems to proclaim the opposite. In his lifetime, we see the powerful, the mighty, the big, the strong, the wealthier. They have the palace. But Matthew 5 says, the meek will inherit the earth. Friends, the world may receive a palace. You get the planet. <laughs> you get the whole universe. You own Saturn when you die with Jesus. Like, so Haman may be top dog, and there are a lot of Hamans out there who are truly wicked. But the Lord has not forgotten his people. The meek will inherit the earth. The humble will be exalted. The humble spirit will attain honor. God gives grace to the humble. Friends, let us not be like Haman. Let us repent of our sin, humble ourselves, even as believers, and trust in Christ. God, we need more grace to be humble. We are not that great to be looked at. So let's not be like Haman. Continuing the story, Haman says, I'm Haman. What could you ask for? Here's what Haman says. So look at verse... uh, (laughs) <laughs> Verse 6, Haman came, came in. So Haman, 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 the best guy ever. And the king says, what should we do to the guy who I think is just the best? So what's Haman going to naturally think? Obviously me. That's what he just says, right? Well, who else would you reward but me? I'm Haman. So look what he says. See, the king says to himself, I'm sorry, Haman says to himself, who in the king delight to honor more than me? That is the cockiest statement I've ever heard. No one's better than Haman. So here's what he says. I got an idea. Give him... Dress him in the king's robe, put him on the king's horse, served by the king's servants, proclaim the king's delight. Make sure everyone knows the king thinks he's the best. We love him. The king loves him. Supreme status, recognition, authority, praise, glory, all that in one moment. Yet the most comedic event happens. And this is, I know the Bible, like, it's not tr- biblically true that God has humor. Like, there's no text saying that. Boy, do I believe it. I just, this, look at this verse. He says all those things, and he hates Mordecai. And the king says in verse 10, Great idea. Hurry, take the robes you mentioned, the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai. Give it to the guy you hate. 
And you, what's even worse is look who has to dress him in, in, in the robes and the horse. Verse 11, Haman. Like, you should dress me that way. And king's like, that's a great idea, Haman. Do it to Mordecai. Like, talk about your worst day ever. He hates this guy. And he gets exalted. The guy who everyone forgot about. Exalted. And the most prideful man is just thrashed down in an instant. You dress him. Oh, the pain he would feel. Can you imagine the heartbreak? Just take away everything else. I don't care. But man, to be the king's favorite, that's all he wants. Gone in an instant. No more. What he meant and designed to destroy and kill was meant for his own shame and dishonor. It's a key point, by the way. What he meant to use to just ruin someone's life, to shame somebody else, and to honor himself, the opposite happens. His design for honor was his shame. His design to kill is meant to actually, we'll see, ruin his own life and kill him. Verse 11 might be the biggest feet-dragging, grumbling act in history. Haman takes the robes and dresses, the, dresses Mordecai. The economy of heaven, again, is counter to what we think. The humble are exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who endure trials. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Guys, let's never fall prey to how we think about the world and, and the way the world thinks. We've got to get into God's Word and let God's Word get into you. We've got to think like God does. We've got to trust this text. The world is so full of, if you get, if you get it now, you'll get all the rewards you want. That is such baloney. Seek Christ, not the glory of the world. Verses 12 through 13, Mordecai returns to his palace at the king's gate after this huge event. So he dresses Mordecai, he takes Mordecai in to the town square and goes, the king, he's probably crying, the king loves someone, here's what he does to him. Just in, probably in tears. So Mordecai goes home like, pretty good day for me. I look, I look like prince, it's pretty cool. And if you read, it says in verse 12, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried. So he's very quick to run in mourning with his head covered. So he's just blubbering. <laughs> My life. I mean, think of the shame. He just walked out thinking, you ever seen me before? He comes back crying because he got just shot down. And then if you know the book of Job, there's a, there's a text where... Um, Job is speaking, and then his friends, the whole text is really just Job and his friends dialoguing about whose theology is worse. And then God says, stop, essentially. And Job is talking, and then his friends jump in and basically just say the most, some correct thing, but some things are kind of like, what in the world are they thinking? And then Job says this, what miserable comforts are you guys? You guys are horrible at helping me. Look at his wife and his friend's advice. Verse 13, so he's blubbering, just my life. Look what they say. If Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall is at the Jewish people, you're not going to overcome him. You will surely fall before him. That's comforting. You know the guy you want to kill? He's, he's going to be your end. It's very peculiar why God says, why, they, why would they say that? What kind of wife would say, he's going to kill you. Good luck. What friend would say that. Some commentators have different ideas. I'm not really exactly sure. I don't really know exactly. I think I have one kind of idea that comes from the commentary. It says this. Their point was, everyone just knows Yahweh rules the Jewish people. And maybe there's some kind of hint in their mind that God has promised to keep his people the whole way. 
So what they're saying is, you're not going to take the Jews down. If God's our people, you got no shot. What are you going to do? God keeps his people. You're not going to destroy them. They're still here in exile. They've not gone anywhere. That's kind of the, the main agreement. I, would, I think I'd agree with that. So God will preserve his people. And your fall will be by his preserving. That's what he's saying. This is true in the lives of Christians. The Lord will preserve his people. Through sickness, distress, poverty, affliction, death may come our way, but the Lord will deliver us to heaven. Romans 8 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is said, we are being killed all the day long. We regard as sheep to be slaughtered. And what does the next thing say? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Friends, all your trials are not meant for your ill. They're meant for your good. God will preserve you through it. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor principalities, nor things present, things to come. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. God will hold you fast. No one can pluck you out of His hand. Now the turn of events begins to happen, verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 6. We see Haman's downfall is, it is imminent, it is on its way. Verses 1 and 2 might be the most quietest day of Haman's life. Again, he's hurried there. If you notice, Haman did it himself hurry. They hurried him there. Again, just probably dragging his feet. Man, we got to go. Oh, man. What a rough morning. And now he's to sit in the presence of the king who just shamed him and with Esther. And they don't like him. He, he, he knows. And, they, and his, his wife just said, you're going to die by Mordecai. So he's rushed there. He hurried to the feast. The feast begins. Both parties are nervous. Esther for her request. Haman for his consequences. There's a lot of different emotions and wills and ideas going involved. But again, we'll see the purpose of the Lord will stand. So what does Esther do? Look at verses 3 and 4. Esther boldly speaks for her people. At the cost of her life, she says, spare my people. Does that, does that sound familiar to you? Jesus Christ, at the cost of his life, spared his people. He is your advocate. He speaks for you to the Father on your behalf. Jesus is the better Esther. He, he not only is man, but he's the God-man. Jesus intercedes for you if you're a Christian. You have God praying to God for you. What do you have to fear? Jesus is the better Esther who re represents us, the people, perfectly. Not only that, but notice Esther's position. She understood, you know what? I have to speak up. So providence has not only governed the life here, but it's also governed her place in her secular vocation, so to speak. If you're a Christian, know that God has put you where you are for a, a purpose. I know that's really just simple theology. Oh, everyone's got a purpose. That's true. We do. But your purpose and work is not random. God appointed you in your occupation for Christ's proclamation. That's why you're there. That's why you exist. You exist where you work to preach Christ, even if it's dangerous or risky or hard. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So your occupation exists to proclaim about Christ. And we see Esther boldly saying, I have to speak up. Christian, you have to speak up. 
I think your, your lives do a lot more than you understand. I think your lives are seen by the watching world. I think that's true. And they see you're kind of a holy roller. You're kind of strange. I hope they see that. You should be peculiar to them. But speak. Speak Christ. You put there for a, to be a light and a salt. So be salty and bright. Whatever we do, let us eat and drink, do all things for the glory of God. So Esther makes this request on behalf of her people in verses 5 and 6, and we see the response. So Esther says, look, someone has not just asked to put us into slavery, someone has asked to wipe us all out. And if it wasn't such a big deal, I wouldn't have told you that. And the king says, look at verse 5. Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? Think of Haman right now. Oh, no. I mean, talk about sweating bullets. He is sweating some bullets. He is losing it. And Esther boldly points him out, a foe and an enemy. The proper response of Haman is that he's terrified. Yeah, he's a little scared too. You just got exposed to the whole king that you are a traitor. You're going to slaughter the queen and her people. Look at verses 7 through 10. We see the most fitting and ironic end brought about by the Lord. In verse 7, we see the king gets up in wrath and walks away to the, the garden. Uh, why did he walk away? Don't really know. He just, ah, forget it. He walks away. Some people think it's because um, he has to like collect, like, okay, I got to think. Haman just betrayed everything I just did. Like, Haman, I'm going to kill the guy that saved my life. Some people think it's because he, got, he actually got up to give Mordecai a chance, to, or I'm sorry, Haman a chance to escape. Like, I'm going to walk away, and he can leave if he wants to. Don't really know. The point is, he is so fierce, he can't even sit there. And Haman has a chance to save his skin and just get the heck out of Dodge. But he just sits. And actually, if you read it, it says this. He begs for his life from Esther. He just begs. As the king turns around to them, it appears that Haman is trying to do something. If you look in verse 8, uh, there's a very iconic scene you guys have probably seen, maybe in like, uh, I don't know, movies in Egypt or something, like older ancient movies where people, is, they're laying on a couch like this, hands laid back, and they're getting grapes fed to them, right? That's kind of what Esther's doing. She's laying back like, let's just lay down and chat. It's very common just kind of lay on your couch in public and just talk. Not really my thing to do when people are up my house, but it's popular here. So she's laying down chatting, and Haman's just begging, like pride her feet, please spare me. And, and it says, if you look, that he actually, he falls on the couch. So the, right as he falls, just this is as ironic as can be. As he falls, who walks in fully angry? The king. If you leave your wife just, just for a minute in the room with another man, and he just happens to fall on the couch next to your wife, what are you going to think? We get the shotgun out. That's what he does. You're trying to assault my wife in the presence of my palace. So could have been, he thought, sexual advance. Could have been attack. We don't know. But what he sees is not what was actually really happening. Can we agree on that? He wasn't trying to do that at all. He was trying to beg for his life. The king sees it actually incorrectly. And some commentators point out Esther did nothing to stop it. She doesn't go, oh, no, stop, stop, stop. She just goes, why that is, it's probably because Esther, well, she's a sinner. She didn't know what to do. She's confused. So he falls on the couch. God's means of enacting this judgment just happened. Justice will be done in the end, friends, in case you forget. Haman was found out. He was exposed. His evil was seen. And the king has him essentially bound and gagged. See ya. 
He covers them up and sends them out. Every evil thing ever done, if you're a Christian, done to you, done the world, God's gavel is going to fall. God's justice and wrath, they are good things. I would never love a God who did not punish evil. Never. If evil just got away and God just said, "Ah, it could be worse. What kind of God is that? Not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is extremely clear on what he feels about evil. He hates it. Every evil will be uncovered, accounted for, and answered. Even when it seems like men's evil peaks more and more each day. So if you're not a believer, this should be terrifying. Every evil thought, word, act, done in darkness, in your secret of your own mind, will be so clear. The Bible says it's going to be almost shattered from the rooftops. It's that clear. Everyone's going to know about it. God will know everything you've ever done. He will show it kind of like on a DVD player in front of you. Look, look at your whole life. It's a lot of evil you've been doing. You've been rebelling an awful lot. Every evil deed will be exposed. The book of Revelation actually says it's going to be so fierce on the last day, people are going to scream to Mount Everest. Mountains, it says, but just picture Mount Everest. Follow me and hide me, please, from God. Please crush me. How scared do you have to be to cry out to the mountains, kill me, just hide me so I don't have to see God. Please destroy me. How scared do you have to be? I think earth-shatteringly scared. But yet, if you know unbelievers or if you are one, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't. He doesn't sit there saying, (laughs) got him. He doesn't do that. God is just and his wrath is true. But the Bible says this, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God does show wrath, but he shows tremendous mercy and grace. He delights to show his love to sinners who are guilty before him. God's done something to take care of your guilt. If you're a Christian, it's been taken care of. And if you're not, we'll check that out at the very end of this text. Verse 9 through 10, we see after the king walks in and says, what do you think you're doing? Haman's head is covered. And again, Mordecai's forgotten deed just comes up again. He's so mad, he probably forgets about it. Ugh, kill that Haman. And then again, his deed comes up once more. Look at verses 9 through 10. Then Harbona, some random guy, and the king's attendant says, Hey, uh, remember uh, good old Mordecai? Um, Haman made some gallows for him. We should use that for Mordecai, or for Haman. That guy saved your life, Mordecai. We should save him and kill Haman on those things. Fifty cubits high, uh, about 75 feet is what you could argue. So it's a, this is a pretty big killing device. It's really high up. You could all see it. And even, even more strange, it's in Haman's front yard. I mean, there's better lawn decor at Walmart, for crying out loud. So he makes this huge pole to kill and hang him on. And look at verse 10. This is the, most, this is the verse that sends up the entire chapter. So they hang Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. That's a big reverse, isn't it? Remember where we started? I'm going to kill that guy. And he ends up dying by his own devices. Is that not just God's hand saying, I'm going to do what I want? You cannot touch people I don't want you to touch. Job 5 says this, He frustrates God, frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. You cannot smart the sovereign. You can't get around them. You can't overplan them. 
He's God. So now we've seen God's providence. I want to recap with a couple, two points about the gospel, about why we can see what God is doing because of who he is. So we see God's hand. But, we, but if you're Esther, you don't see this yet. You don't see the full page like this. You're like, man, what is the Lord doing here? But we see the full page. So I want us to see why when we can't see the full story, we can trust God's heart because we've seen the heart of the cross. I want us to see that. Two points. Number one, Jesus is the better Mordecai. Mordecai did something so great, the king said, reward, record it, make it a big deal. Guys, none of us on the face of the earth, including Mordecai, has ever done anything worthy of getting noted that high. Nothing. There is no deed I have done, you have done, a doctor has done, though they do great things, I'm not neglecting that, that guy will look and say, heaven bound. But there's one who did. Romans 3 says that there's no one good, not even one. We are all affected by sin. We are totally depraved in that every aspect of you is ruined. You could be full, full on worse, but God has restrained you. The point is, thought, word, and deed, we sin daily. But there is one who's lived a perfect life pleasing to God and everything he's done. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the God-man who came to save sinners. Perfectly obedient to the Father, to the heart, and the letter of the law. We know this because when the Father looks down at Christ, what does he say? With him, I am well pleased. The king sees Mordecai and goes, man, that guy deserves my honor. Jesus Christ deserves the honor of the Father. But on the cross, he gets your shame. That is obscene and horrendous. Your shame and your sin is placed on Christ. And he's counted as if he did those things. Counted, counted, this is so huge, counted, 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 as if he did those things. And who gets Christ's honor? By faith, we do. We stand before God and he says, well done. You deserve honor because of what Christ has done. Is that not good news? Your deeds are rags. If you're not in Christ, there's nothing you've ever done. And yet Jesus lived the perfect life in your place. God is now well pleased with you because of Christ. Just as the king was clothed, just as Mordecai was clothed in the king's garments, didn't you clothed in? The righteousness of Christ. You look like him. You're counted as him. Isn't that not beautiful? I cry right now. You look like Christ's life, even in your rebellion. You can sleep all night on that pillow. Point number two, last point. The triumph in and through the cross. Uh, if you have your Bible, look at Esther chapter 7, verse 6 one more time. Uh, if you have an ESV, you might read similar, but if you don't, if you have like a, I think NIV, maybe New King James, uh, it actually says, so Esther says, a foe and an enemy, she points them out. Uh, other translations actually say an adversary and an enemy. Uh, the Hebrew word, via Google and some other things I don't have to my own intellect, the word can actually be translated adversary. Not all the time, but it's often translated adversary. Who is the great adversary of the saints? Satan. What did he mean to do to Christ? Every evil he could think of. He just hated him. And he hates Christians. Oh, does he hate him? What he means for evil, God meant for good. Now, the cross wasn't Satan's idea. Like, I got an idea, God. It was God's idea. But did Satan have a hand in the cross? You better believe he did. He goes into the heart of Jews to betray Christ and say, I'm going to rub it in his face. I'm going to make it hurt. 
the ultimate triumph of the cross is what was meant for slaughter actually slaughters Satan. What he meant to destroy Christ destroys him. What he designed to shame the Son of God in his shame shames the devil. Friends, your adversary has no claim against you. There's nothing he can do to you ever. Now, can he hurt you? Sure. Can he get you to hell? No. I want to read this and we'll be done. Hebrews 2 says that Satan has the power of death. That's what it says. Is that really true? Is Satan in charge of your life? Well, no. It is not. It says, for the children shared in flesh and blood. And then it says that Jesus became death, or man that he might, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So what's the, what's the power of death? Well, 1 Samuel 2 says God kills and makes alive, so it can't mean what it says it means. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. What is this? Why does anybody go to hell? Unforgiven sin. Can we agree on that? Go to hell because you've sinned. So the sting of death, the power of death, the main thrust behind it is unforgiven sin. How does Jesus disarm your enemy? Absorbing your sin on the cross. Turning the cross for good, what Satan meant for evil. All your penalties, wiped, gone. And the power of sin is the law. Well, how's the law against you? Well, because you're against it. The law's good, but we're bad. So Jesus fulfills the law in your place. His obedience counted to you as if you've lived His life perfectly obedient. And you stand before God as if you've lived perfectly never sinned. Your great enemy is nothing. John Piper said that he's kind of like a snake with no, with no fangs. He just has gums. Guys, my son has gums. He can't really bite me. Jude's pretty small. Don't worry about his teeth. Satan's power's gone. Satan's defeated in the cross. The defeat of God's enemies and the greatest adversary all comes in the cross. God the Father planned and actively worked in and through to accomplish His sovereign grace of forgiving your sins, bringing you to Christ, destroying the devil, and making you one with His Son. God is providentially working all things for our good. He is meticulously involved in your lives. Though you do not see His hand, you can trust His heart because of what He's done at the cross. You can trust Him. He really is for your good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Son. God, help us to sing and worship and celebrate what your Son has done for us. God, though we often don't see your hand, Lord, we wrestle with fear and doubt. Pain just doesn't seem to end sometimes. Lord, we know that you are good, you are holy, and you are sovereign. Help us to trust your hand. Help us not to grumble. Help us to rejoice and to trust you, knowing that our sin deserves far worse but your son bore it in our place that we might be united to him and enjoy him forever. We love you, Lord. We love your word. Help us to understand and trust you. In your sons, let me pray. Amen.